Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing the potential in the future for hydrogen-powered aviation. To discuss that, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Pericles Belidis, Head of Power and Propulsion Department at the Centre for Propulsion Engineering at Cranfield University. Professor Pelidis has been advocating the holistic use of hydrogen for some time. In the past, perhaps he was seen as eccentric, but now this is a view that's a lot more mainstream. Professor Pelidis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Before we dive into hydrogen, what is the typical environmental impact of existing commercial jet aircraft? If you look at the environmental impact, and let's focus on civil aviation, because this is where the majority of um, aviation movements and the majority of aviation fuel is consumed. Civil aviation accounts for about 3% of the world's carbon dioxide emitted from human activities, what's called anthropogenic carbon emissions. However, there are very well laid out plans to decarbonize automotive, to decarbonize power generation. And these are taking place as we speak through big investments and through legislation. For aviation, the change of fuel is going to command a much higher price. So there is a general expectation that perhaps more revolutionary changes are going to be needed because of the difficulty that really comes from the need to have very light vehicles. You know, a vehicle that flies needs to be very light. And it is this that is posing a big constraint. And how much can we incrementally improve aviation without changing to hydrogen, using current fuels, but using some of the sort of innovation that we currently have in train? Again, this is a very interesting question that presents an interesting dilemma. I personally am of the view that aviation brings huge economic, social, and uh, economic benefits. And these need to be protected in addition to protecting the environment. Just to give you an example, in uh, Barbados, you find that 45% of the economy is tourism. So then uh, the maintenance of people traveling in countries like Barbados, for, for Greece, for example, is 20%. So we're looking about vast swathes of employment that would be affected if aviation was to be curtailed because of environmental considerations. So then if you look at the technology improvements that are typically one to 2% per annum, and you look at the traffic growth, and here I'm taking the present COVID situation to be something temporary, something that is going to go away. Mm -hmm. It will take a while to solve the health problem, maybe by the end of the year, take another year of two to solve the economic problem. But you know, I would expect by 2023, 2024, we're going to see an increase in the demand for tourism. Then if you look at traffic growth, coupled with this one to 2% per annum technology improvements, what you see is that the quantity of emissions will increase simply because of the increase in traffic. And this is a dilemma that uh, we're facing at the moment. If we're going to look at sustainability, 
along with uh, economic and social benefits, then we do need to find solutions to the carbon problem. Hydrogen is potentially one of those solutions for aviation. And obviously, if we're going to create commercial aircraft flying around the world in large numbers, uh, there's technical and logistical issues that need to be solved both in the air and on the ground. But starting with the aircraft themselves, what are the key technical barriers that need to be overcome before you can fly a hydrogen-powered aircraft? Let me oversimplify things. To enable the flight of hydrogen aircraft is not something that we could do tomorrow. It is something that may require 15 years of development. Also, it's not a single aircraft we need to be looking at. We will need to look at a whole fleet to replace the different sectors, long range, medium range, lack aircraft, you know, dense traffic, spot point to point traffic. So it is a holistic fleet review that will need to take place. Then uh, there are two key issues to address. The first one is that a hydrogen aircraft is going to be lighter and fatter than mm -hmm. a modern aircraft. And this is because liquid hydrogen occupies a lot more volume than conventional fuels do. So then the fuel storage is going to require a great deal of volume, which will make the aircraft bigger and fatter. The other issue that we need to deal with is, if I can put in a single basket, operability issues, longevity issues, certification requirements, looking at health and safety details, all these are tractable, but they will need the right investments and they will need the right attention to detail. And to ensure that the safety record of civil aviation when a change in fuel takes place is as good as it is today, or it is better than it is today because there have been continuous improvement, then we do need to pay a lot of attention to detail. When it actually comes to the hydrogen propulsion, do you think that's going to be hydrogen combustion or hydrogen fuel cells that are more likely to emerge as the solution? It is our view that for the longer range aircraft, we would expect hydrogen combustion in gas turbines. For the shorter range aircraft, we'd expect hydrogen fuel cells, but also electric, all electric and hybrid propulsion. So we do see, if you like, these two sectors working in synergy and the short range flights being accommodated by this electric, all electric, fuel cell electric, and hybrid electric, including gas turbines, many of them with hydrogen, and long range gas turbines for hydrogen combustion. And a challenge here is low NOx. And you may have heard that in the past, a very popular way of arranging airline traffic was a hub and spoke system where you had major hubs connected by large long range aircraft and then spokes connected by commuter and smaller aircraft. And we see a similar arrangement gaining favor with uh, the spoke arrangements being covered by hybrid electric, fuel cell electric and with hydrogen and the longer uh, ranges you know, by aircraft using hydrogen combustion in gas turbines. So you've talked about 15 years of 
development. Yeah. So looking at those two technologies, the hydrogen combustion and the, and the fuel cells, what's sort of possible now and, and what's the trajectory of some of those developments? Again, I see the majority of the developments taking place, again, in terms of certification issues, health and safety issues, advances in uh, the reliability. But also, if I consider the concept of innovation waves, what we will need to look at is, you know, the example I have in my background that, okay, your um, your audience is not able to, to see, is one of the hydrogen aircraft concepts that uh, we have brought about. And it is essentially bringing together the body of a very large double-decker aircraft with four engines and the wings, engines, and control surfaces of a very long range twin jet. And this seems to give, you know, a pretty decent airplane. This is not just a comment. This is something that is actually supported by, it's now more than six months of calculations and it seems to work. For this to fly, I mean, there's a lot of existing technology in it, but for it to fly, there's going to be to need to be a lot of attention paid to the detail of making sure that every component is doing its job. Many of the things have been put in place, but in disparate projects, in disparate experiments. But they have not been put to work together, you know, to carry thousands of passengers over, over hundreds of flights over very long ranges. And is that kind of development already being done in commercial aircraft manufacturers, or is it still more in the um, university sector? You see both. Through our context with industry, we're seeing a great deal of interest, a great deal of excellent ideas coming, uh, coming forward, and a lot of it is being focused on the system, on how to make this thing work. Uh, the physics of many of these concepts are known. There are uncertainties in the detail, like, for example, when you, when you want to lubricate a hydrogen pump, it's operating at, at minus, well, 250 degrees centigrade. These pumps have been designed, but they will need to be working for 10 hours in flight. And then the reliability is something that will need more attention to detail. I can see that. Just taking you off the aircraft for a second, there's obviously a major challenge to make this work as a global system on the ground because airports all over the world will need need to be able to refuel uh, and, and so on. What are the key sort of logistical challenges to make that a reality? Now, it's interesting you say that because uh, for this to happen, I think they would need to, to be a much closer relationship between the power industry, the automotive industry, and uh, the aircraft industry. If you look, you've seen there's uh, a lot of emphasis on legislation now to look at the electrification of automotive. And if you look at the combined electricity requirements for cars, for aircraft, well, in hydrogen aircraft, you know, hydrogen will need to be produced in what we call green waste. In other words, with renewables, you know, possibly including nuclear as well. 
And you find once you put all this demand in place for the United Kingdom, this is just looking at the UK, because of the use of renewables, we may need to have twice or three times the electricity generating capacity we have at the moment. That needs to be in place. This needs to be placed in a coordinated way for uh, automotive and for aviation. One of the features of renewable electricity generation is a big mismatch between the supply of electricity and the demand for electricity. You then find that civil aviation, you know, through the need to produce hydrogen through electrolysis, may require bigger capacity simply to help the matching of the supply and demand of electrical energy supply and uh, production. So then we will need to see more coordination between these three industries. If you look at hydrogen, just the UK requirements for aircraft would probably mean we need to produce 10,000 tons of hydrogen per day, you know, which is a colossal requirement. And also we need to ask the question, this is for the UK, you know, globally, of course, is much, much bigger. This will require 100,000 tons of water to produce that hydrogen directly, plus more for cooling. And then we start to ask the question, this cannot be fresh water. It's a very precious resource and globally, there's going to be a shortfall of uh, the supply of fresh water if we don't change our habits. So then we start to see seawater being the source of uh, hydrogen through electricity, which, which makes it even more expensive. Then the question arises, you know, we do need the coming together of now, if like water utilities, electrical energy, automotive, aerospace. And also this is not something that market forces will bring about. So we need to take a leaf out of automotive and of power. You know, automotive, there has been a big support for electrical cars from different governments. In the power industry, there has been big support for the renewables. And one of the good things about this government support has been, A, over, say, decades, it has enabled the reduction of the unit costs. The second thing it has done, it has created a lot of new employment. So we shouldn't be looking at these costs as a cost. We should also be looking at them as a social opportunity. So you mentioned government support. What then would you say for the UK would be the kinds of government support that would help this process start on the right direction? If I had to ask for a sum of money, I would ask for a hundred billion pounds, not to be, yes, not to be committed today, but, you know, this to be guaranteed over a period of a decade. And we speak, when we speak of a hundred billion pounds, that's not too different to HS2, is it? You may be interested to know that if this 100 billion pounds, if it is 10 billion pounds a year, is about 1% of the value of the European tourist industry, you know, which is greatly supported by, by aviation. So 100 billion pounds sounds a lot of money, but it isn't, you know, for the, the ambition that we are looking at here. You are right, it does sound like a lot of money. And I can see that that case needs to be made carefully. One of the things that might help to make the case, and you touched on tourism and therefore the economic value, are there 
economic benefits from sort of the UK industrial sector, both in terms of aircraft manufacture, but in terms of the power sector, are those the kind of things that can feed into the argument? This is the beauty of the UK. The UK actually has the whole ecosystem, the technology and economic ecosystem. You know, it has what we call main suppliers, you know, it has large gas turbine manufacturers, has large electrical equipment manufacturers, it has system developers. We also need to recognize that uh, although Britain does not have a full aircraft manufacturer, you know, like the big international, you know, Boeing and Airbus that we can mention every day, one of the features of both hydrogen and fuel cell electric and hybrid electric propulsion is that make the propulsion system a much larger fraction of the total value added of the aircraft. And Britain is very well equipped in terms of its propulsion capabilities for the whole ecosystem. So it is an opportunity to make an investment to truly become world leaders in uh, this area. And it will so much help the government commitments to, like, to a green world. So we will be exporting, hopefully, this technology if we make things happen quickly. I can see a world that aviation is fully hydrogen, but you've also got that interesting period in between where some hydrogen capacity is coming on stream, but you've also got uh, the yes. regular aviation fuel capacity. How do you see that sort of transition period where you've effectively got two sets of logistics happening at the same time? If it was my choice, because you have the, we would have the two systems together, I suspect for 30 or 40 years, the transition is not something that is going to happen from one day to the next. You know, if the decision was down to me, I would actually concentrate on the hubs that have the largest traffic initially. And then you find maybe by addressing 20% of the airports, you are addressing 80% of the emissions. And I would start with the major European hubs. Our projections also tell us that if you're going to use hydrogen, you couldn't fly as far. So at the moment, what we're looking at is our longest range hydrogen aircraft includes one that could take you anywhere around the world, but with one stop. You know, we're now close to getting from anywhere around the world without a stop, you know, directly. So they will need to be this stop. Because of the aircraft, hydrogen aircraft are bigger, this will also increase the number of aircraft movements that we're going to have for a given passenger traffic. So then we need to come up with a solution. And one of the members of this aircraft family is a very high density aircraft, very large aircraft, to carry a large number of people over short ranges so as to open up the slots because there are going to be airport slot constraints as well. So by carrying many people with one flight, you'll open other slots for the air traffic. However, the faster we move on with the implementation of hydrogen, the faster we will start decarbonizing, the faster we will start accruing the benefits of this investment. And this is why we're advocating these innovation waves. 
you know, let's do the first one, of course, very safely, but as quickly as we can. As we learn, the second one is going to be better, the third one is going to be even better. In terms of refueling, which I guess is one of the questions you may be interested in, again, we're seeing two options because the hydrogen consumption, you know, by these large airports are going to be very large. We do expect to see local hydrolysis and liquefaction stations quite close to the airport to replace transport issues. This is one way of doing things. Another way we're doing things is to look at the possibility of having removable fuel tanks in the aircraft. So then what you bring is the tank ready, sealed, remove the empty one, fill, you know, and replace it with a full one into the airplane. So it's like a cartridge replacement for the aircraft. The same way we carry cargo, we might be carrying the fuel. That's a very big cartridge. Um, huge uh, cartridge. There will be three or four per airplane at least. So final question then, this is clearly a very complicated system and lots of different things need to hinge around other parts of the system. What would you like the UK government to do or say in the next sort of one to two years to help start this process? What the British government could do is agree to the funding and then uh, between the manufacturers, between Innovate UK and the ATI, the Aerospace Technology Institute, the universities and uh, if like research organizations and the system suppliers, there is enough of an ecosystem and enough of an enthusiasm to carry out uh, the research and development in this area to make it happen. So what the government would need to give is a clear signal that you know this is a way to go ahead and become world leaders, but also supply the necessary economic backup to achieve this goal, which in my eyes is achievable. I have very often called a dreadnought moment. If you are familiar with naval history, the appearance of the dreadnought battleship, which was a British battleship, made all other technology obsolescent. And the right investment at the right time now could actually bring the UK to be a world leader in this area. So it is a dreadnought moment. Fantastic. Well, we'll have to leave it there and we'll see what happens over the next uh, few years. Professor Polidis, thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Pericles Pelidis from the Centre for Propulsion Engineering at Cranfield University. The issue of hydrogen technologies and their contribution to the UK reaching net zero emissions is the subject of a webinar the Foundation is holding on the 24th of February. Details of that webinar, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on the website, you'll find details of all our previous events, our journal, regular blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, I'll be discussing hydrogen technologies with Sinead Lynch, Chair of Shell UK.